Her life expectancy was only about 40 years of age, which meant that between the tender ages of 12 and 14 years old, most girls in her village were getting engaged. There was no rush to marriage, though, in the ancient culture. Engagements lasted for about two years as parents worked together to make sure that the match was a good one. She lived on the edge of the civilized world, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. Picture in your mind's eye a small, remote, backwards, impoverished village. Of course, Nazareth is well known today, but we must picture it in its first century setting, its first century context, most likely fewer than 500 people some of whom would have been Roman soldiers, supposedly stationed to keep the peace. But in reality, those soldiers were an ever-present reminder that her people were governed by a distant emperor, that their land was not, in fact, their own land, and that her family and friends were oppressed. By all accounts, she would have been illiterate, her knowledge of the scripture being limited to only what she had heard in her home or in the local synagogue. Her lifestyle would have been best described as meager, even subsistence living. Her house would have had dirt floors. She would have lived in close quarters with other family members. Those family members together would have worked long hours in a largely agrarian community doing back-breaking labor. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a carpenter, whose family most likely lived in her village. She had known their family. They had known her family for many generations, most likely. The plan would have been for them to have many children as possible together, whom she and Joseph would have struggled to feed and clothe, most likely. Of course, I'm not saying that there wasn't love or joy in Mary's future, but simply that she was without any social position in the world. Her family, her friends were poor, politically oppressed, no sense of real power or position, her life without privilege. From the world's perspective, she was a nobody with nothing from nowhere. Enter the angel Gabriel. Luke writes that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary's was greatly troubled at his words, wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. 
The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called, son, will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word of God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Morning, church. Isn't this a good word? It's a great story. Uh, if you're visiting, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. Special welcome to you. We hope you feel a quick, deep sense of belonging here at Glenwood Bible Church. That the warmth expressed in this story is a part of your experience here. And I would encourage the members, regular attenders of Glenwood Bible Church, to don't, not let people stand on the margins by themselves. Let's make Sunday morning uh, about receiving from God, but also blessing others, right? And let's include people into this story. That's, in fact, what Christmas is about. This morning, we begin our Advent series. As Matt noted, Advent simply means arrival. It's that season leading up to Christmas in which we prepare to celebrate the arrival of God in the flesh uh, to a virgin named Mary, whom Gabriel described as, not once but twice, highly favored. You found favor with God, Gabriel said to Mary. Do a quick word study of favor. What does this mean? What's Gabriel trying to capture here? What's he want Mary to understand? If you study, you'll learn that it means that God is pursuing someone showering them with his grace, surrounding them with his love and care, marking them for special blessing. Doesn't sound half bad, does it? Mary's being pursued by God. Mary's being showered with God's grace. She's being surrounded by God's love and care. She's being marked to receive God's blessings. Who wouldn't want that? Do we feel favored by God? Based on the Christmas narrative, that's the good news. That's the good news. We are favored by God in Christ Jesus, through Christ, through the birth of Mary's firstborn. As you mull over whether or not you feel favored, make sure you remember Mary's life. Too often, we let our feelings uh, rule rather than what's true in God's word, right? We're favored because of what God has done for us in Christ, regardless of what, how we feel. But it, it would be nice if our feelings followed the word of God, wouldn't it? Rather than our circumstances, which put us on a roller coaster. So as you consider, do I feel favored by God? Remember Mary's circumstances. She's, in fact, favored by God but most likely illiterate, <laughs> impoverished, living uh, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, no privilege, no political power, no social position. The one favored by God, from an earthly perspective, weak, marginalized, insignificant, but nonetheless favored by God. Much like Mary, it doesn't matter for us 
where we're from, what we're doing. It doesn't matter if we have social position or political power. We may be poor, marginalized, lacking purpose in life. The good news of the gospel is that we're favored because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. If the Christmas story is about anything, it's about the favor of God. That we are pursued by God. Showered with God's grace. Uh, marked to receive God's blessings. That's what the favor of God means. In fact, on the screen is uh, Luke chapter 4. It's a little further on in Christ's life. Same book. Jesus is now an adult, once a baby, right? Grown up. He's starting his ministry. Listen to how he describes his role in redemptive history. His role to us. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. His hometown as a boy. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. He's going to take his turn reading the scroll. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We live in the year of the Lord's favor. Yes, there's only one Mary. Her role in serving God's purposes were special. They were unique. But everyone who received Jesus as Savior, the one born to Mary, is highly favored. And much like Mary, through faith in Jesus, God's favor is showered upon us despite our social status, our political prowess, our credentials, our accomplishments, and despite our sinfulness. We've done nothing and we can do nothing to merit his favor. Scripture is really clear that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came to pursue us, shower us with his grace, mark us to receive special blessing before we were even born. And if as you're hearing this, it's washing over you and you feel or sense faith rising up inside you and you're saying to yourself, I want some of that favor. I, I want to experience that. I, I believe that's true, that God is caring for me. Then let your mouth profess what your heart is believing about what God has done for us in Christ. And scripture says that you are being saved, that a part of the confessing with the mouth is, is affirming what we're believing in our heart. And it's a part of that process of God saving us, of bringing us out of darkness into light, out of a place without faith into a place of faith and trust and hope and joy. You can do that right where you're seated, simply by admitting you need God's favor. You need God's care. You need God's grace. Why? Because of our sinfulness. Jonathan did a great job talking about the alienation that is our experience because of sin. We're separated. We have the trauma of sin in our lives that separates us from our creator. That's our experience at birth. And Jesus himself said, for that reason, you've got to have a new birth. You must be born again. You're brought into the fellowship, into reconciled relationship with God and with others through what the bread and the cup represent. 
the broken body, the spilled blood of Christ. So you can do that right where you're seated. Say, talk to God about the favor you desire to experience through faith in Christ, admitting your sinfulness. Now, how did Mary, or what did Mary do after Gabriel's visit? Let's continue a little further. I'm in Luke chapter 1. Uh, he, Luke's really clear. She goes to visit Elizabeth, the one that Gabriel mentioned, her cousin, who's also miraculously pregnant. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Luke doesn't say exactly when this trip took place. He simply says at that time. But with just a little bit of math, it's easy to deduce that Mary must have set out for Zechariah's and Elizabeth's home soon after Gabriel had departed. Remember, Gabriel told her that not only would she have a child as a virgin, a miraculous birth she would have, but that Elizabeth, her aged and historically unable to conceive cousin, is already in her sixth month. The one unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Mary stays just up until the time of Elizabeth's uh, birth of John the Baptist. And so we know that she probably leaves right away, stays about three months with Elizabeth. Two women in the same family, one old and barren, one young, engaged, and a virgin, both going to have miraculous births. Luke says she got ready. She hurried off to see her cousin. Now, the distance to travel, uh, she was up north in Nazareth. She's going to travel south to Jerusalem, the hills of Judea. It's about 90 miles. Imagine walking from basically this area, DuPage County, up to Milwaukee. That's about the distance that Mary would have traveled. She demonstrated great courage in taking this trip, as this trip would not have been an easy journey. Imagine being in your first trimester as a teenage girl, just recently pregnant, possibly having trouble keeping food down, maybe struggling with morning sickness, all the while traveling by caravan on foot because you, you didn't have enough money to pay to be carried the distance. You're sleeping with strangers. The trip takes four-ish days by foot. It would have been dangerous, a dangerous trip, an uncomfortable trip, an expensive trip for someone of her social standing. I wonder why she took the trip. Why do you suppose Mary went to visit Elizabeth? She hears from Gabriel. And then Luke says she, she gets ready and she hurries off to visit with Elizabeth. Why? I ask why this a visit of Mary to Elizabeth is called by scholars as the visitation. Right? It, it, it's got a, a name for it. Uh, and, and what unfolds there is significant. But interestingly, her trip, Mary's visit to Elizabeth, doesn't fulfill any biblical prophecy. In other words, there's no historic compelling reason that she would go. A lot of what unfolds in Christ's life has to do with ancient prophecy foretelling it. And, and so we can see why this event happened and that event happened. That's not the case with the visitation. So why does Mary go? We also know that there are no other, there's no other recording of Mary and Elizabeth seeing each other after this visit. It's not like they hung out more afterwards. It's not like it's the beginning of a long-standing annual visit that we know of. In fact, there's no record of Jesus and John the Baptist growing up together, these two cousins, the offspring of these two women. Jesus grows up in Nazareth, John the Baptist in the hills of Judea, that is outside Jerusalem. 
Why does she make this trip? Considering the risks, the expense, the energy, why would she make it? To answer the question, let's look at what she experienced when she arrived and how she responded to what Elizabeth has to say to her. Here's what Luke reports. I'm in verse 40, 41 of Luke 1. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, so she, she gets to the house, knocks on the door, begins to greet them. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, so the, the Spirit of God is present in the visitation, in the moment that they greet each other, these two women experiencing this miraculous birth. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, blessed is a child you'll bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So she has some revelation, some knowledge about what's going on in Mary's life. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. John the Baptist responds to Mary's presence and to Mary's voice. And he's in Elizabeth's womb. Blessed, Elizabeth said, is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Why do you suppose Mary went to visit Elizabeth? I would say she went for encouragement because that's what she receives. In visiting Elizabeth, Mary received encouragement to believe what Gabriel had told her about the coming birth of Jesus. Ever need encouragement? We all need encouragement. Everyone needs encouragement. Perhaps this morning, you need encouragement to believe God's word. To believe it's the wisest way to live. To believe that his promises are true for you. To believe that you're highly favored because of what he's done for us in Christ. Maybe you're in a season of intense temptation or persecution or suffering the problem is, sometimes we have trouble admitting we need encouragement. Everybody in this room needs encouragement. That's, in fact, in, in part why we gather every Sunday, as well as between Sundays. Most of us are in groups that meet between Sundays because we need encouragement. In Mary's trip to visit Elizabeth, I see the most human and appropriate response to the Word of God. That is a desire for encouragement to believe what you've heard. Elizabeth says to Mary in a loud voice, no less, right? Small Judean village. She raises her voice. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is a child you will bear. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Blessed means happy. Blessed means fortunate. Blessed means well off are those who believe that God will keep his promises. The converse is also true. In other words, sad and poorly fixed in life are those who don't believe the word of God will be fulfilled to them. Mary 
walks into town, knocks at Elizabeth's door, and Elizabeth, full of the Holy Spirit, pronounces these blessings. Blessed are you who believe. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be well off? Then you will need encouragement at some point along the way to believe the promises of God are true. Make sure you understand me. I am not saying that Mary lacked faith. That's not at all what's going here on here again. I'm not saying she's struggling with doubt. I'm saying again, she, it's a very human and appropriate response to go visit another person who's experiencing the miraculous work of God in their lives and who's depending on those promises. That person was Elizabeth for Mary. So she packs her stuff up, she hurries off, she wants the fellowship of the miraculous. That's what this is, folks. This is the fellowship of the miraculous. This is the gathering of the people clinging to the promises of God. This is the place you come for encouragement. So many times we need encouragement and we go to the wrong place to it. Insert here your favorite sin. Or the people that encourage you to sin. Mary gets ready quickly. She takes a 90-mile journey because she wants the fellowship of those depending on the promises of God. That's the people of God. To whom do you go for this type of encouragement? Well done that you get here this morning. For whom do you offer this type of encouragement? To whom are you saying, blessed are you, well off are you, fortunate are you because you believe the promises of God? Hopefully we're saying this to our spouses and our kiddos and our friends. We're cheering them on to loving good deeds. Who's cheering you on that way? I, let me do it. Based on the word of God, happy are you to believe his word. That's why we sing together. There should never be just one person preaching. We sing because we preach to each other. We, we say, blessed are you. Anybody within earshot for believing that God's word, his promises are true to you. If you want encouragement, you've come to the right place. That's what the church is. At least in part, and I'll be the first to admit, we don't always do that well for one another. Sherry and I were praying just this week, help us to be lovers of, each, of, of others, to be patient and kind with, to encourage people. The church doesn't always serve the function it's supposed to, but that's the function it's supposed to. By God's design, we're to make this journey together. He's not presenting, at the end of time, multiple thousands of gazillions of brides. He's presenting one bride, one people, knit together through the elements that we celebrated this morning, the body and blood of Christ. We're together in this, and we're to help each other and love each other. <laughs> I had a funny experience I had a, a, an argument with a guy, uh, it's probably over 12 months ago now, on the golf course. And we're teeing off, and, and the argument started at hole three, and it went 
four, five, six, whole seven. At one point, the guy I'm riding with in the cart, I say to him, I don't know that I'll be able to finish 18. Every time we'd tee up, we would get revved up, and he was riding in another cart. We kept talking. We worked through it. I, I saw him last night at a basketball game. He so encourages me. So loving, so patient, so kind. I said to him, you are so encouraging. And we both laughed because it started with like a, a five-hole fight. A disagreement over uh, something theological. I just was remarking on God's goodness. The church is the fellowship of those believing that God's doing something miraculous through Christ in me, in you guys. I see it. Are we perfect? No. Do we sin against each other? Yes, at times. But I see you going and growing in faith, persevering, enduring. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. This morning, do you need encouragement to believe, and I've got a little laundry list, that God loves you unconditionally based on the authority of his word? He so loved you that he gave his one and only son to die for you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more or less. He's loved us perfectly in Christ. Amen? Do you need encouragement to believe that his plan for you in life is good? Ephesians 2.10, that there are works prepared in advance for you to do. Based on the authority of his word, I want to say you're blessed if you believe that. You're happy, you're fortunate, you're well off. Do you need encouragement to believe that God hears your prayers despite your unrighteousness because of who Christ is and his righteousness? He's given us his name so that we can come before the throne of God. We don't come before the throne of God in our own names. We come before the throne in Hebrews. We can do so boldly because of who Christ is. Do you need encouragement to believe that you can walk free from the power of sin in your life? Based on the authority of God's word, if you have the spirit, the spirit sets you free. What we were powerless to do, he's done for us. You need encouragement to believe that God's preparing a place for you that's free of suffering. Jesus himself said, I go to prepare a place for you. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, closes. There's a place being prepared that's without tears, without suffering. He did a funeral uh, just yesterday of a Korean war vet who died at 90. He suffered for many years leading up to his death. We have hope in the face of death. The writer of Ecclesiastes, I, I started almost every funeral saying, uh, quoting the writer, death is the destiny of every man and the living should take this to heart. We all face our mortality. And Christ has cared for us in our mortality. Overcoming death. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in those who are trusting in him. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, awakens us, empowers us. Amen? 
Now, we know Mary was in fact encouraged because she pulled off basically a Broadway musical. She breaks into song. I don't know how many of you have ever been so encouraged that you just begin singing. That's not my style. But Mary is so overwhelmed by the encouragement. Elizabeth does a great job encouraging her. And frankly, the, we'll close in song here in a minute. We should have extra volume in our singing because we're encouraged that God is with us. He's for us. He's favored us in Christ. Our response should be singing. Mary's the first to sing in the Christmas season in the Gospel of Luke. Begins in verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. Fear the Lord this morning. From generation to generation, now 21 generations later, or 21 centuries later, I should say, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Humble yourself in the sight of God. He's filled the hungry with good food with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. She breaks into song. It's like a pop bottle shaking up, the top comes off, and she just can't contain herself. You know you're getting a handle on God's grace when some of that's your experience, where you can't wait to tell somebody about how you're discovering God's goodness towards you and how you have newfound freedom through faith in Christ and you found purpose in Christ. That'll be your experience. You'll find yourself wanting to give your money and give him praise and give your time. Theologians call this song the Magnificat, Latin, from the Latin. The first opening line, my soul glorifies the Lord. Literally, it's my soul magnifies the Lord. My, my soul enlarges the Lord. The point is that the news of Jesus' coming birth to Mary so enlarges her understanding of what God is doing in her life and for Israel, the people of God, that she can't help but sing. And as the grace of God shown towards us in Christ washes over us, that's our experience. We want to magnify him. We want to glorify him. We want to sing. We want to serve. We want to give. We want others in their understanding to be magnified. We know that we are increasingly grasping the breadth and the depth of God's grace, his favor shown towards us in Christ as we magnify him. We realize that we are both at one and the same time undeserving and rich because of what God has done for us. This Christmas season, let's ask God to magnify, enlarge our understanding of what he's done for us in Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. Open our mouths. Uh, Open our mouths as a response to our understanding of your goodness towards us in Jesus, through Jesus. 
Open our minds to understand it. Open our hearts to believe it. Open our mouths to confess it, to affirm it, and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.